Good evening. How are we doing, Revolution? All right. <laughs> that, that might have been a new low on that. Well, if you're uh, just joining us, we are uh, in the middle of a series where we've been kind of working our way through some of the Old Testament prophetic books, some of the, the small books that, that are written by these prophets in the Old Testament. And essentially, we've been asking a couple questions. We've been asking, one, what do they say? And two, why on earth should we care about what they say? Because um, I think in a lot of cases, not only do we not read the Old Testament and not read the prophets, but in the rare chance that we do happen to read them, they make just about zero sense to us. And so what we've been trying to do is try to unpack those and see that they are important books and they do have real relevance for our lives. So we've just finished up uh, last week the book of Jonah, and this week we're jumping into the book of Micah. Um, and Micah's a good bit different than Jonah. If you were here for the Jonah series, um, you know, Jonah, it, it's a lot like a story. It reads like a narrative, and it focuses primarily on uh, this prophet and his hypocrisy. It focuses on this, this man of God who is a complete hypocrite, a complete bigot, and that's kind of the point of the story. Micah is really different. Uh, Micah is not focusing on the prophet. It is focusing on the prophet's message. And, and his message is really a lawsuit. God has some complaints against his people, and he's going to bring these charges to bear against them. And that's the, the sort of focus of the book. Micah is a prophet we could probably relate to uh, here in southern Ohio. Micah is a rural prophet. He's a bit of a redneck farmer, probably. Um, and and he's, uh, he's called by God to go and to speak to the entire nation of Israel. So here's this this local redneck guy who's called to go and speak to an entire nation and confront them. Um, and, and so what we'll read in the book, you'll read a little bit about how he confronts them. He, he uses a lot of, of language and symbolism that's relevant for him, stuff that, he would, that would resonate with who he is and where he's from, you know, hillsides and all this kind of stuff having to do with more cultural uh, settings. Maybe, uh, to borrow the old cliche, kind of you could uh, take a guy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the guy or something like that, right? which, of course, makes no sense to me because the country is where your GPS takes you to kill you quietly. It's not a place you choose to go intentionally. But in any case, in any case, let's, let's ask, what is the lawsuit? What's going on here? I mean, the, the book opens with this rather dramatic announcement, and we'll read it here in just a minute. But before we do that, we want to kind of unpack what's God's complaint. Why is he angry with his people? Essentially, it's this. God had picked Israel, God had set up Israel to be a special kind of people, to be different, to be distinct, to be unique. And by being different than everybody around them, the rest of the world was supposed to look at Israel and go, what's going on there? And essentially, they were supposed to come to understand who God was by the way that Israel lived. But the problem is that Israel isn't living that way. They look exactly like every other idolatrous, rebellious nation around them. They were supposed to do everything differently. They were supposed to do family differently. They were supposed to do um, worship differently. They were to be a people of one God, as opposed to all the other nations around them. But they look exactly like everybody else. Now, the same principle applied to, applies to the church, that God set up the church to be a different kind of culture. We were to be different than everybody else. We were supposed to do family differently and sex differently and finances differently and worship differently. We were to be a different kind of people. But, but I don't have to tell you that the problem is that the church today looks more like the world than it probably has in its entire history. 
we look a lot like everybody else. We've got the same problems. Our rate of divorce and promiscuity and anxiety is as high as it is among non-Christians. We've got all the same problems. We've got all the same issues. And often, we don't represent Christ as we should. And the same was true of Israel in Micah's day. So I want to read, we're going to read a, a kind of a heavy chunk here, the first two chapters of Micah. So if you've got your blue Bibles, we're going to be on page 552. And we're going to read the first two chapters here. Try and, and kind of hang in there. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'll do my best to, to take some pauses as we read through. So it begins, page 552. The Lord gave this message to Micah of Moresha during the years when Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Judah. The visions he saw concerned both Samaria and Jerusalem. These are two big cities within Israel. And here's how he begins. Attention. Let all the people of the world listen. Let the earth and everything in it hear. The sovereign Lord is making accusations against you. The Lord speaks from his holy temple. So we've got this immediate announcement that God is ready to bring his charges against his people. Look. The Lord is coming, verse 3. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. And why is this happening? Because of the rebellion of Israel. Yes, the sins of the whole nation. Who is to blame for Israel's rebellion? Samaria, its, city, its capital city. Where is the center of idolatry in Judah? In Jerusalem, its capital. So I, the Lord, will make the city of Samaria a heap of ruins. Her streets will be plowed up for planting vineyards. I will roll the stones of her walls into the valley below, exposing her foundations. It's, a, it's language of complete destruction here. Right? You plant vineyards in barren fields and, and you expose the foundation by ripping apart everything on top of it. Verse 7, all her carved images will be smashed. All her sacred treasures will be burned. These things were bought with the money earned by her prostitution, and they will now be carried away to pay prostitutes elsewhere. In, in ancient pagan cultures, they had what were called cult prostitutes. So if you went to church on a Sunday morning in an ancient pagan culture, that meant you were going to worship uh, by participating in group sex. Uh, to put it plainly, that's what was going on. Church was a little different, right? Um, and, and what that essentially meant was you would go, you would pay a prostitute, and then you would do your little thing, and then uh, the money that you used then would be used to buy all sorts of sacred items for the temple. And that's what's going on in, in this temple, in God's place, among God's people. That's what they're doing. And so God says, I'm going to destroy that, and what you, used to, to, what you bought with this wicked money, I'm going, to, I'm going to send away to be used for some other purposes. Verse 8. Therefore, I will mourn and lament. So now the prophet himself is speaking about his reaction. I will walk around barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For my people's wound is too deep to heal. It has reached into Judah, even to the gates of Jerusalem. Don't tell our enemies in Gath. Don't weep at all, you people in Beth Lepharah. Roll in the dust to show your despair, you people of Shafir. Go as captives into exile, naked and ashamed. The people of Zanan dare not come outside their walls. The people of Beth Ezel mourn, for the house has no support. The people of Merith anxiously wait for relief, but only bitterness awaits them, as the Lord's judgment reaches even to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness your chariot horses and flee, you people of Lachish. 
You were the first city in Judah to follow Israel in her rebellion, and you led Jerusalem into sin. Send farewell gifts to Moresheth Gath. There is no hope of saving it. The town of Akzib has deceived the kings of Israel. O people of Marasha, I will bring a conqueror to capture your town, and the leaders of Israel will go to Adullam. All these crazy city names essentially saying God's going to destroy these cities as well. O people of Judah, shave your heads in sorrow, for the children you love will be snatched away. Make yourselves as bold as a vulture, for your little ones will be exiled to distant lands. Okay, verse chapter 2. Bear with me here. What sorrow awaits you who lie awake at night thinking up evil plans? You rise at dawn and hurry to carry them out, simply because you have the power to do so. We're getting into some specific sins now, not just general language about how they're idolatrous and evil, but specific language about the actions of these people. It's, it's actions of oppression. When you want a piece of land, you find a way to seize it. When you want someone's house, you take it by fraud and violence. You cheat a man of his property, stealing his family's inheritance. But this is what the Lord says. I will reward you, your evil with evil. You won't be able to pull your neck out of the noose. You will no longer walk around proudly, for it will be a terrible time. In that day, your enemies will make fun of you by singing this song of despair about you. And here's what the song sounds like. We are finished, completely ruined. God has confiscated our land, taking it from us. He has given our fields to those who betrayed us. It's a pretty song, isn't it? Others will set your boundaries then, and the Lord's people will have no say in how the land is divided. Now, we've got some false prophets, some, some other prophets who are going to respond to all of this, to what Mike is saying, and here's what they say. Don't say such things, the people respond. Don't prophesy like that. Should, such disasters will never come our way. Should you talk that way, O family of Israel? Will the Lord's Spirit have patience with such behavior? They're saying, don't, don't talk like that. Don't say those things about God and about us. God doesn't, God doesn't act that way towards us. Uh, verse 7, the latter part, If you would do what is right, you would find my words comforting. Yet, and here God responds, Yet to this very hour my people rise against me like an enemy. You steal the shirt right off the backs of those who trusted you, making them as ragged as men returning from battle. You have evicted women from their pleasant homes and forever stripped their children of all that God would give them. Up, be gone. This is no longer your land and home. You have filled it with sin and ruined it completely. Suppose a prophet full of lies would say to you, I'll preach to you the joys of wine and alcohol. That's just the kind of prophet you would like. Now hear a word of hope as the book ends, or the chapter ends. Someday, O Israel, I will gather you. I will gather the remnant who are left. I will bring you together again like sheep in a pen, like, flock, like a flock in its pastures. Yes, your land will again be filled with noisy crowds. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile and through the gates of the enemy cities back to your own land. Your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. Let's, let's pray. Jesus, this is a, a, a dense passage. It's a, a bit difficult sometimes to process everything that's written here. Um, it's a long passage. I pray that you would help us to, to, to stick it out right now, to to be able to hear from you exactly what it is that you want us to understand from this text and where I represent your will correctly, let that be heard, I pray. To your glory's name I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book opens with this dramatic sort of poetic introduction. Um, it, it, sort of the result of God's coming. 
It's this picture of God coming out of his holy temple, and he comes down into to history, into time, and, and we've got this language in the opening verses here of mountains melting under his feet and valleys splitting apart. And, and there's this general idea that God is not coming for a little chat. He's coming in judgment and wrath. He's coming in anger. Almost as if the, the sheer weight of his footsteps just destroys the earth. Now, it could be that he's just kind of speaking figuratively. God is a powerful, awesome being. It could be that Micah is saying that this is what the army of Assyria is going to be like. The army of Assyria is going to come down over the mountains and sweep in to Israel and destroy them. God has already said he's going to use the nation of Assyria to punish his people. Now, if you remember when we were talking about Jonah, uh, Assyria, uh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And you remember, God told Jonah, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Nineveh and I want you to warn them that if they don't repent, I'm going to judge them. And Jonah was sort of, you know, uncomfortable with that idea. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed and God spares the nation and now he's going to use them to punish his own people. It's a very, it's a very bizarre, very frustrating perhaps setup that God is designed to use evil nations to sometimes judge his people. Why is God coming? The reason spelled out in verses 5 through 7 there, it talks about the, the sin of Jacob, the sin of Judah, and there's this general idea that Israel has failed to be the kind of counterculture that God wanted them to be. They look just like everybody else. Samaria is the capital city of the northern part of Israel, and it's a hotbed for idolatry and prostitution. And, and uh, Jerusalem or Judah has, has all sorts of high places in ancient cultures. It was, that's what a high place referred to, a pagan temple. Places where they would go and they would worship all sorts of various gods. The, the people of God are now the people of all sorts of gods. It's a complete reversal of the structure that God had set up and of what God had wanted for his people. We see the response to God's coming. The, the, the sort of uh, remainder of the chapter 1 sort of sets the tone for the whole book. Micah responds in this sort of personal lamentation. He's just devastated for his people. The, set, the text says that he's so upset by what's happening to his people that he runs around naked and cries himself to sleep, um, which is definitely a dramatic response. There's a language of hopelessness here. And all those crazy city names and all that stuff there, there there's this idea that um, Micah is playing off the city name. This city sounds like the word for fire, and so he says the, the fire city will be judged with fire, or something like that. Right? It would be like saying um, port's mouth will be swallowed up, Right? this idea of mouth and swallow, or, or the county of green up will be blacked out, Right? something like that. That's what he's doing. He's, he's playing on the city name to demonstrate to Israel there's no hope for you. These people that you would call on to, to rescue you, to help you, they're going to be destroyed too. There's no hope for Israel. And even the latter part of the book, the latter part of the chapter there ends with this idea of children being taken away. Well, children represent a hope for a future. There's no hope here. These people will be devastated by the God that they so say they serve. You see already how very vastly different Micah is from Jonah. God takes cultural conformity very seriously. That's a big deal to him. I mean, the purpose behind Israel is to draw all nations to God, 
And if they're looking just like all the nations, that can't happen. And the same is true for the church. The church is set up to point people to God, to offer people, to offer the world a hope. But if we look just like them, there's no hope. There's nothing to offer. I can remember, um, I, I, and maybe this is typical of all you know, youth groups when you're in high school or whatever, but I remember the, the youth group I was part of in high school, um, I remember we had scheduled this big event. We were going to invite every, you know, everybody in your class to come to this big event, and, and we were going to play video games at the church all night, and we thought, this is going to get people just pouring in here. And so I, I remember I told all my friends, you know, come, we're going to be playing video games at my church all night. You need to come play video games at my church all night. And most people were polite enough to say, you know, uh, you know I've got something else going on, or, you know, you know, sure, I'll be there, but then not really show up. But there was this one cat, I remember. I told him, come, you got to come. We're going to be playing video games at my church all night. It's going to be awesome. And he looked at me and he said, why would I want to play video games all night at your church? And I remember looking at him and going, well, I don't know. <laughs> the honest truth was I didn't really want to play video games at my church all night. He said, I have a video game system at my house. I could just play at my house all night. And I thought, yeah, yeah, that actually sounds like more fun to me. <laughs> what a silly thing to think that somehow, like, I was going to just win people to this, this great event, video games at my church all night. Well, okay. See, and the problem is maybe not that we just do sometimes silly things and think that that just kind of just is amazing. This is going to be the, the breakthrough thing that just reaches people. It's not just that we do sometimes silly things, because in Israel's case, and sadly I think in the church's case, it's far worse than that. We don't just look like the world and try and compete with the world. We look like the world in some of the worst possible ways. Chapter 2 really spells out the heart of the problem, and, it, and it's oppression of the poor. In Israel's case, they are an oppressive, oppressive people. Their leaders uh, are, are basically conniving and scheming and coming up with ways to steal land and to steal property from people. And if you live in an agricultural society and somebody steals your land, what do you have left? You have nothing. You have no way to provide for your family. You have no hope. And God had set up, in the Old Testament, God had set up uh, some structures, some ideas, some ways to protect his people from that very thing. He, he, he'd said, we were going to protect the poor so that they're always taken care of. And there was this, this thing called a jubilee law. And the jubilee said that every 50 years, all land was, was returned to its original owners. It, were, it was returned to its original tribe. So that you couldn't have this cycle of, of poverty. Every 50 years it would be returned to its original owner. All debts would be forgiven which is pretty nice. Every 50 years, all debt's forgiven, right? I think that's a good way we, we ought to kind of go back to that. But here the people of Israel know this, and they're completely ignoring it. Not only are they ignoring it, but when, when the, the poor go and complain to the judge and say, this guy stole my land, and he refuses to give it back to me, though I, though I earned it, it's been 50 years, when they go and complain to the judge, chapter 3 tells us the rich just bribed the judge. And the judge says, no, no, I'm going to rule in his favor. 
This is a seriously oppressive culture. God had set up very specific ways to protect the poor, and Israel just outright ignores those now. It's the complete opposite of God, what God had wanted. Now, it's, it's not that there should be no distinction between lower class and upper class. There just is going to be. Not maybe, maybe there shouldn't be, but there is. There just is. There's a distinction between lower class and, and upper class. But the reality is, is God set it up so that those with means and resources were to take care of those who were in need. That was their responsibility. But it wasn't happening in Israel, and, and my fear is that perhaps it's not happening in the church either. Now, maybe the church isn't, isn't getting rich off the backs of the poor, but I fear sometimes that the church is part of keeping the status quo. That is, we maintain the current cultural structure that allows for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. We maintain that. We, we maintain that maybe through, through some ignorant consumerism. We just don't pay attention to the ways that how we shop affects those who create. Or, or maybe, maybe we keep it by maintaining the prejudices of our culture. Right? People on welfare, well, they're just mooches off the government. Or maintaining prejudices like, uh, well, that, uh, that homeless person just needs to get a job which, by the way, might be one of the most ignorant things you could possibly say. And, and, and I have probably said it. Or we, we keep the status quo by refusing to invest personally in care for those in need. Oh, we might throw some money at a problem, but that doesn't usually fix a problem. The specific sins continue. It, it's not just that they're oppressive. In verses 6 through 7, we've got this picture of the preachers of God supporting the status quo. Look at chapter uh, 2, verses 6 through 7. Here's what it says. Don't say such things, the people respond. Talking about Micah's warning. Don't prophesy like that. Such disasters will never come our way. Should you talk that way, O family of Israel? Will the Lord's Spirit have patience with such behavior? That's an interesting line there. They're essentially saying, if you keep saying that God's going to judge us, God's going to get you instead. If you would do what is right, you would find my words comforting. See, the, the, the preachers of God, the, the prophets, were essentially saying, we're going to keep things the way they are. We're going to pretend like what Micah's saying is completely false, and we're going to keep the status quo. We're going to fuel our position. It happens today. It happens with preachers who, who promote this sort of prosperity gospel garbage that says, it's all about what you can get. Who cares what everybody else gets? It's all about you and about what you can get to fuel your own life, to have your best life now or whatever. Or think about uh, popular talking heads who said, uh, there was a particular one a few years ago who said, if your church even hints about something like social justice. You should run because it's part of some liberal agenda. If your church doesn't talk about social justice, you should run because that's a biblical concept. Or how about this? There is a, a gentleman who's part of the, he's president of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Liberty Council. 
and in the lieu of the Trevon Martin case, made some incredibly insensitive racial comments about the propensity of African Americans towards crime. Not only was that idiotic, but he should have been asked to step down from his role as the president of the Ethics Council. How do you get to be president of the Ethics Council and have such terrible ethics? I, I felt like the, the, the whole Trevon Martin case was, I saw more ignorant, more, more oppressive language from Christians than anybody else. This is all a very big deal to God. Verses 3 through 5 shows us just how seriously he takes justice. He takes justice so seriously that he's willing to destroy his own people because they ignore justice. Of course, the people, they're, they're utterly blinded. Verse 11, they, they refuse to hear Micah. It says, suppose a prophet full of lies would say to you, I'll preach to you of the joys of wine and alcohol. Let's have a party. God's not going to judge us. Let's have another party. This would be a prophet for you, he says. We have to be different than Israel. We have to hear the message of Micah because they did not, and God sent them into exile for it. Micah is calling God's people back to faithfulness. And Micah is calling us to the same kind of thing, calling us to faithfulness, to obey the God who cares about justice. I'm thankful that there, there are a number of, of great teachers who are catching on to this. And, and one guy is a pastor out of Manhattan named Tim Keller. And, and, and Tim Keller, I think, really carefully talks about this issue of justice. And he, he essentially says, um, he, he picks up on Jesus' language in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. What does he mean there? What, what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is he's saying those who understand they are spiritually poor, they are in poverty spiritually, those who understand that position will see God because they're not trying to earn salvation, they're given it. They know they have to go to God to receive it. They need his charity to get out of their state. Now Keller takes that, the poor in spirit, and he says here's how the gospel changes the way we relate uh, to the poor. Here's how the gospel affects our understanding of justice for the poor. And, and he gives three examples, and here's what he says. If you say, I refuse to help the poor, let them help themselves. Let them pull themselves out of this mess. Let them kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get a job and do whatever. If you say that, Keller says you don't understand the gospel. Because that's not what the gospel said. The gospel said you were in poverty spiritually and you couldn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and God came and rescued you. If you say, okay, I'll help the poor, but I'm only going to help those who deserve it. I'm not going to help anybody who, who's in poverty because of their own stupid mistakes. I'm not helping them. They deserve what they got. I'm only helping those who deserve to be helped. If you say that, you don't understand the gospel, because that's not what Jesus did for you. If Jesus was only going to save those who were worthy, he could have saved himself a trip. Right? There weren't any. If you say, all right, I'll help everybody, but only if it doesn't cost me anything. 
you don't understand the gospel. Because Jesus didn't come and rescue spiritually poor people just by getting his hands dirty even. He got his body bloodied. It cost Jesus everything to rescue those in spiritual poverty. And if you say, I'm unwilling to do that, it's because you don't understand the gospel. The truth is, is I, I, I think the church has become fat and lazy and self-absorbed. The church is a, is a bloated cow sucking on its own udders of selfishness because it refuses to open its eyes to the reality of what's going on around it. It is comfortable with the status quo. Let's build another multi-million dollar building. We must be different or we will see the same kind of reality that Israel saw in Micah's day. 4,000 churches close their doors every year permanently. 4,000 every year permanently close their doors. It is my prayer that revolution would not be another one of those statistics. And that means that we have to be different. We have to be a counterculture. We have to see that justice is important to God. And the gospel is the way that we change. Really, at the end of, of the chapter 2, that's what we get, is a picture of the gospel presented all these centuries before Jesus. Micah is really it's broken down into what's called three cycles. And each cycle has judgment and then hope, judgment and then hope, judgment and then hope. And so chapter 3 ends with hope. And, and verse 13 is really important. Here's what verse 13 says. It says God, God's going to bring his people back and he's going to give them a new king. And here's what it says. Your leader will break out and lead you out of exile. They're going to come back to their land. And through the gates of the enemy cities, back to your own land, your king will lead you. The Lord himself will guide you. God's going to give his people a new king. And who's that king? That king is Jesus. Jesus is the king who's going to lead a people perfectly into justice. When he came the first time, he started that plan. The new kingdom is being built now. It's happening now. And the question is, will we serve the new king or will we maintain the status quo? It's my prayer that, that you will help revolution do the former. That we will serve that new king and that new kingdom. It's great that we have, we have some really great programs, uh, really great things going on. Uh, I love our free market. I, I, I love uh, our East End. I, I love the things that we do. I love that we work at Father's Table, all that sort of stuff. But that is just a small piece of what needs to happen. We've got a long road ahead of us to care about justice for our community. And my prayer is that you will be part of that. Let's pray. Jesus, um, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for having an, er an attitude of arrogance and condescension towards, uh, towards the poor. Of having a careless attitude about justice. Of being almost apathetic at times. Because the reality is, is that justice is very, very important to you. And therefore, as a Christian, it needs to be important to me. 
Thank you that the gospel is not for only those who are wealthy and well-off and powerful, but it's for people in desperate, desperate states. People like me. I pray you would bless us to care about your mission in Portsmouth, your mission for communicating the gospel, and your mission for carrying out justice. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.